The Akan and Coca Report, episode 109. Welcome to the Akkad & Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Well, welcome to this most recent episode of the Akkad & Coca Report. Uh, today we have the pleasure of having Peter Kolchinsky here. Peter Kolchinsky is a biotechnology in- investor and a scientist. Um, he started his car- career as a scientist. Uh, is actually a virologist, and then he went on to co-found and run a Boston-based investment firm called RA Capital Management that's very successful and invests in new drug therapies. He uh, now writes and teaches about biomedical entrepreneurship, and he's here to talk about his most recent book, which is really great, really fascinating, um, called The Great American Drug Deal. So, Peter, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Peter, can you tell me what, what was some of the impetus to writing the, the book? Obviously, a lot of people write books uh, to give some insight, to push back on something. What, what, uh, what was your uh, specific reason to write the book? Yeah, it, it didn't start off as a, as a book. Um, I, I think that's too daunting uh, for anybody with a full-time job to, to tackle, or at least it would have been for me. Um, you know, I, I was uh, focused on uh, finding interesting companies to invest in uh, that were developing new types of drugs. Uh, you know, steeped in the science. And right around middle of 2015, uh, when um, a company called Turing Pharmaceuticals uh, took an old drug and price jacked it like uh, 5,000%, um, Hillary Clinton tweeted, you know, uh, about it. And that was the first step down a, a steep precipice for the industry. Um, and the sector... Uh, was really thrown into turmoil as the public, you know, uh, connected the dots uh, from the high prices that it perceived for hepatitis C drugs through to that, uh, you know, price jacking uh, insult. And it was an insult. um, And I write about that in the book. Um, And, uh, you know, the sector uh, dropped. You could see it in the stock indices and uh, investment started to cool a bit. And, you know, I thought, all right, well, you know, this industry is, uh, you know, sort of well-versed in dealing with, um, you know, public outcries over high drug prices and comes back from it and has answers. And we've got lobby groups and surely, you know, I'm going to hear some uh, cogent responses. And um, I, I was kind of disappointed by, uh, by what I heard. It, they weren't uh, entirely satisfying answers. You know, you would hear patients uh, cry out saying, I can't afford my insulin. And the industry seemed to respond with, well, drug development is very expensive and it's high risk and all that. And, you know, that wasn't an answer to the patient's question, right? It, an answer would have been, that's terrible. You, you have to be able to afford your insulin. You know, companies, scientists didn't invent this stuff in order for you not to be able to afford it. You know, that's what we rely on proper insurance for. Um, now, if the question you're asking is, is America getting value for its drugs, which of course is not really what patients are asking, it's maybe what health economists are asking, but if that's what you're asking, well then there's another answer that the industry wasn't giving, and it's that uh, yes, most certainly, drugs are the most cost-effective aspect of healthcare because they are a manufactured you know, commodity, and after their patents expire and competition sets in, they drop in price, they go generic. 
it's the best value proposition that there is in healthcare. Nothing else about healthcare goes generic, not hospitals, not surgery, not surgery, you know, and um, nobody was saying that. Uh, everybody was focused on the, uh, on trying to justify the high prices of today's drugs based on today's value proposition. And they weren't making a case that these drugs are upgrading human health for the rest of all time. And I waited and I thought, well, somebody will make these arguments, but, but they didn't. Um, and uh, I remember, you know, with the election, uh, last election, I, I went in search of sort of answers in American history, uh, you know, for how does this country deal with turmoil and adversity and, you know, uh, stress in the executive branch, uh, to put it mildly. And uh, I went reading the biographies of, you know, uh, the founding fathers. Um, and uh, I read Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton, uh, you know, the one that sparked the, the musical, which I haven't seen yet, but I've listened to the lyrics and they're great. Uh, and the biography was terrific. And, you know, it tells a story of somebody who uh, really understood the workings of a government, of a society, like truly at, you know, at the most fundamental levels, understood how finance worked and taxation worked and um, uh, helped draft the social contract at the uh, at the root of America, you know, the um, Constitution, together with the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. Uh, and there was a moment in time when it wasn't clear whether or not that social contract would pass, whether the Constitution would be ratified. And he and Madison and Jay wrote their hearts out uh, in defense of the workings of the Constitution to try to defend it uh, before all of its critics and published their articles in the uh, various newspapers around the country back at the time. And, uh, you know, anything that the public seemed to not understand about the Constitution, you know, the need for, you know, two branches and, uh, you know, federal taxes and a, a centralized army and all that, they explained and explained and explained um, as best they could. And uh, later on, the, those articles were, were uh, uh, published together um, and called the Federalist Papers. But I can't imagine that's quite, you know, that was their intent. I think they just tried to explain everything they could uh, when it felt so urgent to, right, to make sure the Constitution passed. And they succeeded. And so uh, I thought, okay, well, I, I don't know if I can write, you know, as many articles as, as uh, Hamilton, Madison, Jay did, but, you know, I've got a few in my head. And I just sat down and started writing. And I thought, okay, I will defend this notion of a biotech social contract, a phrase, by the way, that I had heard uh, the CEO of Allergan, Brent Saunders, use. Um, and he defined the social contract as we shall not raise prices by you know, more than single digits. And I was pretty sure that something as glorious as a biotech social contract can't quite be that. And it struck me that you know, what it could be is a promise by our industry to make drugs that will go generic without undue delay uh, and a commitment to doing so, um, and a promise by society to make all drugs, branded or generic, affordable to patients through proper insurance, uh, which means not having out-of-pocket costs so high that you know, people have to uh, go without treatments their doctors tell them are, are necessary. Uh, and so I wrote those articles, and when they finally came out, uh, they were met with... Um, you know, a lot of interest and I got a lot of support from the industry. I had thought that maybe if I'd made a mistake somewhere in my logic that, you know, 
that would be the point where I'd hear about it. You know, people would poke holes in them, but they didn't. You know, I, I was invited to give more talks and the audience interrogated aspects of the social contract. And it certainly helped evolve my thinking and led to more articles. And I baby stepped my way from one article to another until finally I looked at the totality of what I'd posted on, on Medium. And I thought, oh, this shouldn't be too hard to turn into a book. You know, I'll just staple them together. And uh, I was really wrong about that. Uh, there's a, a vast difference between a set of articles and a book. Um, and several really great editors uh, schooled me in that, uh, shredded you know, all my writing and forced me to uh, you know, work with them to put together a cogent book uh, with new chapters. And it, uh, it had to fit to, together a lot better than my articles did. Um, so writing the actual book was, was the last step that I thought would take three months and it took more like a year, but it's done. Uh, so, so, and you, um, so, no, and I think one of the, one of the things I really loved about the book is, um, you really, uh, have a way of clarifying the argument, um, clarifying your arguments, uh, in, in support of, you know, the, the, uh, the drug industry and in support of, uh, uh innovation and support of, um, uh, you know the pharmaceutical industry and all the benefits that it has to society and um, how one should go go about paying for it in, in, in a way that's um, much clearer than than most of the most of the stuff that we read. I want to I want to and, and you know and as you're as you're saying you kind of approach this because you were triggered if you will um, by the conversation uh, uh, that seemed to be uh, kind of missing some pretty important points that that you bring out nicely in your book and so. We'll, We'll focus in on some of them. So, you know, there's a nice passage um, in your in your book early on, and you talk about um, ne uh, needing to uh, uh, reframe how one thinks about uh, uh, the pharmaceutical uh, industry and the drugs that they produce as not so much as uh, rent, but mortgage. So you say, you know, when when you pay a high, when you pay a high and growing price for an apartment forever, that's called rent. When you pay a high price for an apartment for a defined period of time and then you own it, that's a mortgage. That's right. uh, those, those expressing outrage at the high price of brand drugs were in a way thinking of a mortgage payment as if it were rent. Um, a rent is an expense, a mortgage payment, mortgage payment is an investment, and no one was making that uh, point. Um, and so, uh, you know, and, and this builds on, um, you know, the thing that, uh, that I think you're right about is, is missed a lot um, in the debate is that these drugs do go, or, you know, a significant portion of these drugs that have pretty large, pretty large, certainly some population benefits, some individual benefits, uh, like statins and whatnot. Um, when, they, when they go generic, they're kind of, you know, benefiting society kind of forever. And so you've kind of put in that investment so, you know, the entire globe can then enjoy these drugs. Um, and then, you know, the other, the other point that you bring out is that, um, that uh, you know, the, the reason high drug prices aren't, um, you know, people talk a lot, a lot, a lot about it is because, um, of the high out-of-pocket costs that have kind of come to bear um, a lot of it as part of the, you know, kind of changes to both the private and the public, um, you know, insurance, uh, uh, private and public markets uh, when it comes to insurance over the last uh, 10 years. Um, so I want to kind of hit both of those points. Um, one is um, when you talk about the um, investment that one makes, how do you decide, Peter, what that investment should be? Yeah, so um, I, under the uh, 
Well, under the regime, under the, the framework that we've been operating uh, with for the last, well, basically my whole career, where um, there's been a confidence that America values life. It, uh, it, you know, when it sees suffering, it wants to help. Um, and it will not place a value on life. Um, at the very least, the value it places on life is very high, right? Uh, what it has allowed, uh, I believe, scientists, people in the biotechnology industry to do is to, for the most part, focus on what can we do? Technically speaking, what problems can we solve? And uh, to know that as long as it's doable, if we uh, then pursue those solutions with certain probability adjustments, that when we bring those drugs to market, we will be able to charge uh, prices that will have made it worthwhile. Now, that breaks down, right? Uh, if, let's just say that one says, well, if, if we can make at least, uh, you know, $500 million a year with this drug, you know, for the, uh, you know, time period when the patents last, you know, that's a high enough net present value to justify the risks and the costs of this particular development program. Uh, well, $500 million divided by how many patients? Now, if you're thinking at the societal level and you say, this problem that we have, you know, I would gladly pay $500 million times, uh, you know, uh, 15 years, uh, which, you know, adds up to $7.5 billion. Um, I would gladly pay that uh, in order to know that we've fixed this problem once and for all, right? Um, then that's one way of doing the math. But when you have to arbitrarily say that we're going to pay for that kind of um, insurance value, that reassurance that we now have a tool to solve a problem by dividing by the number of people that are going to get it each year, and it turns out that there are, what, 500? Okay, well, then that's a million dollars per patient. And so the question is, given that I have to charge a million dollars per patient, you know, for this, um, in order to make the math work, do I believe that we uh, are operating or will operate at the time that we launch in the kind of climate that will accept that? And if the answer is no, I'd be too nervous. I, I don't think I, I would want to be backing a company that's got to justify a million dollars per patient to the public. Then it may not get funded. Now, if it happens to be that it's uh, 5,000 patients, uh, then it becomes possible to make the math work because $100,000 per patient per year is precedented. That isn't what, you know, sets off alarm bells, uh, you know, typically. And, uh, and the aggregate cost of $500 million, you know, per year is generally not what insurance companies freak out about. And so if there's a disease with 5,000 patients, then we say, okay, well, at $100,000 per patient, yes, that's, that's doable, right? And so that's pretty much, you know, uh, how we uh, gauge whether or not the public will, uh, if not embrace, then at least accept or, or not vilify that drug if we launch. If I had to now ask the question, yes, but when later on uh, there's some government agency or a group like ICER that will run some math after the fact, after we've taken whatever risks we've taken to try to bring this drug to market. Gee, I wonder what 
value they will assign using their their particular formulas, um, then that's a degree of uncertainty that would, I think, uh, preclude investing in a whole lot of things. In fact, I'm not entirely sure what we would invest in if uh, we knew that we would only get paid what a group like ICER says our successes are worth. And their math is deeply flawed. Right, right. No, and, and you actually do bring up the fact that, um, you know, for instance, the uh, ICER, I guess, doesn't, and I didn't know this, actually, ICER doesn't uh, take into account uh, the value of when a drug does go generic, correct? So there's a limited time right. frame that they're kind of looking at and stuff. Yeah, they, they treat mortgage that, payments like rent. Right. Do you, but do you see, Peter, the issues with, um, do you see any issues with kind of the, this, the, the game, which is, uh, which basically says the rules are that um, I'm going to come up with this important drug and then I'm going to, you know, because I have a patent and it's, you know, it's exclusive, um, I get to choose what, what the price is. I mean, so the pushback, you know, in some sense comes from, you know, uh, you know, you get to, you know, you get to choose whatever price it is you want to pick for a drug. It's of course, yeah. healthcare is such a, you know, healthcare is such a, is such a challenge because of course in other, in other, in other markets, you know, you can, the consumer can walk away from a product that's being produced. And in this particular case, there are products that end up getting produced that, you know, folks, folks can't walk away from because it could, it could be, you know, it could be a difference between life, life and death and, and, you know, how one exactly uh, deals with that um, is, is a challenge, but, and that's why it gets thrown onto society. And then, but isn't this, isn't this, isn't this a kind of a, 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 a kind of a, a, a match between folks that are saying that, you know, we're society and we're saying I, that I we don't want to, we don't want to pay, we don't want to pay this massive yes, investment. I, I, I totally hear you. I would, well, how do we, I, I hear it in part, you know, this is the twisted part of, of um, the problem. Some people, as they convey what you're saying, they accidentally end up saying something to the effect of, I wish you hadn't invented cures for hepatitis C because then I wouldn't be on the horns of the dilemma of the fact that, ah, I have to pay for it, right? It's like, I wish no such cure existed, and then I would just accept my fate, which by the way, is to spend even more, you know, treating, uh, you know, the progression of hepatitis C with the only technologies we've got, which is, you know, transplant, uh, and, or just outright accepting, you know, suffering and death. So, uh, I take your point that the public feels uncomfortable with the idea that the industry, when it does achieve a technological success and a regulatory success, you know, the, there is the FDA to make sure that the drugs that come to market are better than what we had before, um, that uh, it, the public worries, what if we will be taken advantage of, our desperation will be taken advantage of, and a company will just charge a billion dollars a patient, right? And the question is, has that really happened? You know, if someone were to take advantage, to prey upon the public like that, uh, upon patients and the, the mercy of America, um, then wouldn't the industry's profit margins be way higher? You know, it's awfully strange that when you do the math on the whole industry, if you just simply shaved 20 or 30% off of US drug prices, you would drop the industry's profit 
down to basically zero, wipe out executive compensation. Everything that the American public has been uh, you know, taught to hate uh, will be wiped out. And yet a 20, 30% discount off of American prices, is that gonna make these drugs affordable to patients? No, right? And so it's strange. The industry does not seem to be systematically taking advantage of this ability to price gouge that the public is, uh, you know, sort of guided to fear. So I don't believe that we need to be imposing controls on prices to prevent something that isn't happening with the exception of outliers like Turing Pharmaceuticals and Daraprim. And there are fixes for that, like the CREATES Act. Right, right. So that, and, and so one of the, one of the interesting things um, in, in, that, that you bring up is that um, when this, con- you know, the, the contract that you're talking about that, that you want uh, folks to kind of uh, cleave to is um, this idea that drugs need to go generic. Because when they go generic, there's massive, uh, massive benefit to society. Um, and there are, you know, there are biosimilars, which are, you know, not just mixing chemicals together or chemicals, you know, mixed together in a certain way. Uh, those are very unique and it, it may be very hard or impossible to create equivalent biosimilars. And, um, I guess we can talk about the uh, cocktail and the wine analogies, if you like. Right, right, exactly, right. So, so you know, so you nicely explained how you know it, it's if if there are if there are compounds that are being made, if there are drugs that are being made that, that are that are biosimilars that are unable to be uh, to go generic easily, um, you'd be okay with um, governments uh, or regulations that compel after the patent expires that compel companies to allow generics to be made. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the intent of patents is to. Uh, offer a finite period of time for the innovator to be able to uh, you know, charge uh, a high price and collect a reward for that innovation. You can't entirely have a monopoly if others are able to invent something similar and compete with you, um, but at least no one's gonna directly rip off you know, what you've created um, and others are forced to innovate too. But Sometimes uh, the monopoly you have is not rooted in a patent. It's rooted in essentially the uh, complexities of science and the rigors of the regulatory process, like a gene therapy. And the FDA just doesn't have any mechanism for saying that somebody else's gene therapy is the same as yours and substitutable. And therefore, a pharmacy can just switch out the brand for the generic. And so when you enjoy a red tape monopoly like that, or what an economist would properly call a natural monopoly, then we have kind of the opposite of a patent. You know, it's a uh, price regulation that steps in and makes sure that uh, our free market system is not hijacked by natural monopolies. And we've done it with other natural monopolies like railroads and water utilities. And that's what these are, by the way. Like these drugs, once they're invented, um, they are they're destined to become public goods, right? They, they are ours. They are our shared resource. Society will have paid off the mortgage. It owns it. And therefore, it's entitled to have that uh, public good at pretty much as close to the cost of production as will preserve that supply, right? So I, I, I think the regulation I'm proposing is just a natural fix for a uh, market failure. 
So Peter, I didn't see much much in the book about um, the FDA, and I, I, you, you're very positive on the FDA. I mean, uh, in terms of, um, uh, you know, Michelle and I have have had a couple of podcasts where we've brought up the high entry barrier that the FDA places in terms of, you know, their the requirement for efficacy. You know, I mean, the FDA's history is interesting in terms of going from um, an organization that was primarily concerned with safety to now one that is essentially is a you know, is followed so closely by the investor community, right? Because if the FDA approves a drug, especially in a market where, you know, if an FDA approves it, payers will pay, uh, you have, you have, you know, you have kind of a known windfall, if you will, that, 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 that happens if the FDA, uh, you know, More has or less a, known. I, I mean, it, it's a lot harder to guess what the sales of a drug would be, you know, uh, companies these don't days. Depend. Well, it's, it's been like this for a while. For a while. Okay. I heard, but, but what, when but, Pfizer but what? Lipitor, they thought it would be, you know, a rather modest selling drug. Oh, know, right. That's a okay. rare case of a drug selling more than a company expected. Usually they sell a lot less. A lot less. Okay. But so what, but do you not have any issues, um, especially as an investor, somebody who's been on the kind of under the covers, if you will, um, kind of drug development in terms of, do you have any issues with the FDA and the bars that they have uh, in order, you know, the cost that they kind of put on? folks like you to get a drug to market? Um, I, I think it's really important that uh, the world and America uh, patients, that they have uh, somebody that, uh, you know, is kind of sworn to uphold uh, science and clinical standard um, for something as complicated as drug development. Um, I, I've got a book, uh, next to my uh, bed uh, that I've been flipping through here and there uh, called, I think, Quackery. And uh, it's just kind of a fun book to uh, go back and see how people used to treat themselves with mercury and arsenic and the most obscene things. I mean, and not really that long ago. Uh, it's, it's frightening and implanting goat testicles. And I mean, the stuff that con artists will will come up with to prey upon uh, vulnerable people. Uh, you know, you think you find, you know, some uh, folks engaged in predatory practices today. It was like, it seems to be all predatory. And the worst is that some of them actually believed it. You know, they weren't predators. They really thought that, you know, exsanguinating somebody, you know, uh, is a good treatment for just about everything. Or making them vomit like crazy, right? Like, they right. but it. but yet, but yet, without the FDA, we progressed from leaching somehow, right? Without the FDA, we've progressed in all sorts of different ways. I Meaning, so uh, so, well, is it is it that uh, we needed yeah, the very, FDA? Very very slowly, very very slowly, we yeah. have progressed. You can go back through a medical history book, and you can yeah. find how long it took, you know, uh, hygiene to uh, you know make its way into hospitals. So when you then look at the rate of progression, the rate of progress today, I think that we would be held back dramatically if there weren't a regulator holding companies to a uh, high standard of proof. And I think that we have the mechanisms, by the way, even without the FDA, to reveal that a drug uh, is more dangerous than we thought, right? So now imagine what kind of faith would America have in medicines if the uh, news that a particular drug that you thought was safe, even just, you know, you, you've, uh, you guys have covered 
the uh, generic uh, drug industry and how you know we discover that some of those products are tainted. Yeah. Imagine if you had no idea which drugs you could trust. Right, you know? right. And of course, you would say, "Oh, I prescribed this statin for you," and a patient would look at yeah. you and be like, "Now nah, I'm going to go with I don't know, uh, right. water and, and dieting." Right. Though, though the as as I mean, the interesting thing with that story is is that um, it was you know there's is that there there are um, you know it it took it took whistleblowers you know outside of the uh, that that weren't in the FDA to kind of you know kind of clue people into what was going on and then it, the most interesting part of it is is that there's a company in in the in Boston I think I forget where exactly and somewhere in the Northeast that is you know actually batch testing every single every single uh, pocket of drugs that they get to see if you know they have what they say they have. So in some senses, yeah, they're, you know, you've doing a lot have, more than what the FDA has. No. Right. So the point is that it, it may be that if you didn't have one, just one large regulatory body like the FDA that is giving this kind of you know uh, uh, certification, and, and some of the some of the certifications, as you saw with that whole with the drug with the generic drug uh, uh, mess that we have in India with Ranbaxy and stuff, that kind of certification mean, you know means next to next to nothing. Uh, maybe you'd have a bunch of. I different... think it's. I think it's great that we've got the FDA. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I definitely think there's uh, things that the FDA could do better. Do better. Any group of people, you know, they, there are mechanisms for them to evolve and right. uh, they feedback. But uh, besides the FDA, I think it's great that we've got watchdogs. I think it's great that yeah. Catherine Eben wrote that book, yeah. Bottle of Lies. You know, and while not everything in that book. Um, I would say uh, reflects on the totality of the generics industry. I think it's a little harsh. I also don't think that it was her job to be nice and right. you know totally balanced. You need a book like that to wake up, uh, you know, our entire, you know, all of America to uh, it, how important it is to make sure that the generic supply can be relied upon. In fact, right. when I saw that book, uh, my my heart sank because I thought, here I am writing my own book about the value of branded drugs because they go generic and they remain effective and reliable and inexpensive for the rest of all time. And here is uh, this book saying that's a lie. And I immediately, uh, you know, pinged some of the people that I know in the industry, um, including people that have been at the FDA. And I said, is this true? And they said, it's a lot better now than it was. So uh, I, I hope that we continue to uh, guarantee the, generic supply, I would gladly see every branded drug, uh, you know, a, a tax imposed upon it in order to fund additional resources for either the FDA or you make up what watchdog you want to quality test every generic batch out there so that the public has faith. Because it's only by knowing that after you've paid off the mortgage on your house, it's actually going to remain erect and, you know, function and serve you and be you know, still a, a good home for your kids when you pass it on to them, that makes the mortgage worth paying. Right. So one, yeah, no, that, that, that's a great, that's a great point. The, uh, the, there are, there are of course a, a bunch of folks that um, have different views on how to control drug prices, right? Uh, one, uh, there's the camp. Um, I think Peter Bach is, uh, is, a, is fairly prominent and, and, you know, he wants to control drug prices, use some formula based on, you know, some value thing. Um, John Arnold, uh, you know, is uh, is seemingly everywhere um, and has uh, funded a number of different uh, uh, organizations. And you know, his point is that uh, you know a, a drug's price should be linked to its clinical value to patients. 
Um, uh, and, you know, again, he highlights the fact that drugs in, in the United States are much more expensive than drugs, um, you know, in the US. So drugs outside the US are much more expensive than drugs here. Um, yeah. So therefore, some, that has led to some folks, um, you know, talking about using those prices as a reference for US prices. Um, there's a, you know, you and I exchanged a bunch of tweets uh, a, a couple of weeks ago about this story of um, the state of Utah, uh, uh, you know, sending sending people in limos to Mexico to to buy drugs to uh, to bring them back. Tell me, tell me why, tell me why all of those are wrongheaded. All of those. Wow. Um, okay. So. Uh, well, well, you can start with so just drug price. You know, just well, capping capping start, drug prices and then and then getting drug and then yeah, getting so drugs from other countries. So just so those, why those two why points. Don't we, why don't we start with the idea of there being formulas? Um, so uh, the industry already operates off of um, a rather broad formula, which is what I described before. It's, you know, generally how big uh, a win do you need? Um, and for a, a rare, uh, you know, genetic condition that biology and that might be straightforward enough, you might say $500 million a year for 10 to 15 years, you know, that would be a big enough win divide that by the number of patients. Uh, and if the cost per patient doesn't look like it's uh, gonna fall far outside of what's precedented, you basically say, all right, let's go for it. And hopefully we'll succeed. This will be a value to patients. And I know that I'm doing uh, God's work, even if someday ICER won't value it, uh, because you know this product will go generic and uh, it, we will never have to worry about this disease in the same way ever again. And that's worth it, right? Um, but obviously, if you divide that $500 million by five patients, and it turns out you're going to have to charge $100 million per patient, we're not willing to do it. So there is a formula that uh, basically causes our industry to say, let's not do quite all that we can. Um, what uh, others, whether it's, uh, you know, the um, Arnold Foundation uh, or Peter Bach or Patients for Affordable Drugs or ICER, which, by the way, all of those are funded by the Arnold Foundation. So I, I suppose it all comes, comes down to um, John Laura Arnold. But um, still, the ideas that they are, uh, you know, putting out there and, and funding, they preexisted them. They didn't invent these ideas. They were always there. Uh, and they've been magnified. And the fundamental idea that there are better formulas that will more precisely tell us what these things are worth, you know, uh, it's really easy to dismiss that quite simply by the fact that uh, already economists have shredded ICER uh, for failing to take into account that uh, drugs go generic. It's basically like, uh, you know, looking at somebody who's paying uh, $2,000 a month and saying, oh, you're such a fool. You're paying, you know, $500 more than the other guy, you know, living next to you. And at no point did you ask which one of them is paying the mortgage and which one's paying rent, right? And uh, it's such a foolish mistake, you know, that uh, any health economist that actually does that should not qualify to be called an economist, right? And this has been pointed out and they have not corrected this. So ICER is a political organization, much like NICE, by the way. I had a conversation with somebody at NICE and I pointed out, it's like, hey, if you guys build a model over time that takes, 
takes into account that society pays high prices for 15 years, you know, but then virtually nothing for the rest of all time. But meanwhile, it gets, you know, decades and decades and basically an eternity of qualities, then at a two or 3% cost of capital, you know, you divide a century's worth of cost, which is really just 15 years worth of high cost by a century's worth of qualities. And these drugs are way more cost effective. In fact, if you bother to do the math, you'll find that these ICER values, these cost effectiveness values drop by about 65%. And uh, he said, uh, you know, now that I think about it, you're right, that, that is what most likely would happen with the math. I'm like, great, so is NICE gonna change its formulas now? He's like, no, because that doesn't serve our interests. We're not here to show how cost effective drugs are. We're here to push back on drug prices, right? So it shows you NICE's true colors. And, uh, you know, ICER is basically the American NICE. And, you know, I think that we need, uh, you know, it, somebody who's going to shred these formulas and reveal them for the heartless, flawed half-truths and, and, you know, uh, flawed math that they are um, in order to, uh, you know, get the discussion going again as to is there really a way to value these things. By the way, not after they come out. You know, playing Monday morning quarterback is not exactly an appropriate way, uh, you know, to engage with an industry that spends 10 years uh, developing a drug. But how about ahead of time? Like, I'd like to see ICER or anybody tell us, so what would you pay for a uh, treatment that improves uh, the lives of patients with Alzheimer's? Just tell me now. Because if your number is too low and I plug it in and, you know, it's like, wow, so we're going to take uh, these incredibly long uh, odds. We're going to pump in a ton of money. And at the end of it, your reward is this small. Um, okay, then we won't do it. Like we can't do it. It's not that, you know, I wouldn't like to see progress on, on Alzheimer's. It's a really scary disease that's coming for an awful lot of us. Um, but uh, I can't ask my investors to take their savings. I can't ask pension funds, endowments, uh, any of these kinds of people to uh, risk their savings pursuing a project that basically is uh, philanthropy. Like you'll never make your money back. There's, a, there's room for philanthropy, but by all means, and maybe the uh, Arnold Foundation and others can fund uh, you know, research uh, into Alzheimer's out of the goodness of their heart and all. Um, but those dollars are so much smaller than the dollars that the private sector uh, can put to work when it's allowed to offer investors a financial return, the promise of financial return, right? And uh, it's not like it's going to cost them a lot less, you know, to do this. The difference between the pharmaceutical sector and, and doing everything as a nonprofit is what, that 15% profit margin or so that they have? So, you know, people who think that suddenly if a nonprofit did it, that it would only cost, you know, a tenth of the price to develop these drugs, you know, are missing the fact that it's going to cost you the same to enroll patients in clinical trials, the lab work, and then the failure rate is going to be, you know, the same. There's no reason to think that nonprofits would, uh, you know, magically be blessed with higher success rates. So uh, I, I have not yet seen anybody who supports, you know, ICER type formulas offer to use those formulas to tell us ahead of time what will something be worth? They just sit on their formulas quietly until a drug for sickle cell anemia is launched, and then they judge 
after the fact how easy it was and tell us how little it's worth and how you know uh, greedy and terrible the industry for charge is for charging what it's charging right all the while not valuing you know uh, the fact that that drug is going to go generic and consciously not valuing it tell me that's not a political agenda no, lots of political agendas here. What about? Tell me about the. What about? What's your problem with the uh, with uh, reference pricing? Like um, uh, Americans are getting. Uh, yeah. the, the thing you hear Americans getting ripped off. Look at look at how much the Canadians and Mexicans pay for the same drugs. Yeah. So um, the um, the analogy that I would use is, uh, and I'm still working on this analogy, so uh, bear with me. But um, you know, there's there's a, a house with a, a number of rooms, and uh, we you know, uh, want to live there. Um, we are the primary tenant and we are making mortgage payments and we've got these roommates, European roommates, uh, let's say, and Canadian roommates. And, uh, you know, we would like them to pay, you know, proportionately, uh, you know, for the uh, mortgage payments to help us pay off the house. Um, but they say, no, you know, look, I'll, I'll just uh, couch surf a bit and, you know, I won't eat eat quite as much as you, you know, I promise not to be as messy. I'm just going to pitch in a little bit. Right. And, you know, it irks you uh, because you know that what will happen is after you've paid off the mortgage, they will move in, in full. They'll claim a room. They'll use those generic drugs fully. Right. They'll move their families in. They'll enjoy, you know, the benefits of having paid off that house uh, after the drug goes generic. Um, but they're really not willing to do anything more than pitch in for the mortgage payments a bit, right? And so as much as you kind of want to throw them out and say that's just not fair, the reality is that you will only be robbing yourself of the supplemental payments that they're offering, you know, that little bit of pitching in, and you'll end up paying more. So um, if there were a way to force them to pay their fair share through trade negotiations, you know, what have you, that would be great. Like, I fully support the American administration's efforts to try to get uh, other countries to pay their fair share for uh, you know, basically everything that they should be paying their fair share for. Way back when, when Canada was ripping off drug patents, uh, you know, we actually you know, engaged with them in some negotiations uh, and the outcome was NAFTA and uh, Canadians got in line and they respected drug patents after that. So it is possible to achieve um, greater fairness with negotiations. But if what you say to basically the home builders uh, is, look, uh, it's so unfair that uh, I have to pay more than you know, my uh, couch surfing roommate here. I insist that I'm only going to pay what uh, he's paying. Then you know, that may feel more fair to you, but the home builder is like, but I can't actually make my business work. I can't build homes for people if you know, everybody just pitches in what they can, right? And so as the primary mortgage bearer, you, you can't just say, that's it, I, I'm, I'm just gonna be a couch surfing uh, you know, roommate, someone else bears this cost. The, the whole uh, industry, does indeed depend to uh, a large extent on America, and America cannot forsake uh, its um, its duties to its own patients. Other countries are taking advantage of that. So uh, the IPI, the International Price Index, um, as it's proposed, just in its most pure form, 
could actually have an unintended consequence um, if indeed America is still intent on uh, funding innovation to help its patients. Uh, by saying that, you, that the primary tenant, us, and all of our roommates have to pay the same you know, fraction, uh, the same fair uh, price, if it results in driving them out, then uh, in other words, if we, if American companies basically set the same US price exported to Europe, uh, and we discover that the Europeans really are willing to deny drugs to uh, their patients, uh, if they are, you know, priced higher than they are now, we will find that America is shouldering not just half or two-thirds or whatever of the, the profits of the drug industry. Um, it's going to be shouldering all of it, right? And it'll just mean that Americans are going to pay even more for the innovation that they want. So uh, if, uh, however, we discover that the Europeans have more heart than they've been letting on and that they're not really willing to let their patients suffer, then uh, we might in fact discover that the Europeans um, will pay more of their fair share and uh, it could potentially uh, reduce the US prices that companies project uh, you know, that they'll have to count on in order to justify innovation. I don't know what's gonna happen and that's the dangerous thing about IPI, right? Uh, you, know, you could go through years of turmoil discovering which way it's going to go. There certainly are signs that even in the UK, which has a reputation of being pretty draconian, that uh, when they're really forced to think about whether they're willing to pay for a drug, um, that they will. There's an uh, oncology drug, um, Sutent, that Pfizer uh, sold that was uh, quite expensive, that NICE uh, you know, deemed to be uh, not cost-effective. And seem to refuse to pay uh, pay for, but the UK came up with a special cancer fund, you know, and uh, seemed to be willing to pay for Sutent out of that cancer fund. And they somehow the UK reassured itself that, well, we didn't really deviate from our, uh, you know, cost effectiveness metrics because we didn't really use our standard proper budget. No, we have this special other fund. And, you know, look, in truth, I don't think any of us care which pocket the UK reached into. The bottom line is that the UK revealed itself to have a bit more heart than we thought they did, which is great, right? So uh, I hope that if push comes to shove, we discover that Europe and Canada, that they are willing to pitch in and pay their fair share for these mortgages. Um, unfortunately, by the way, uh, HR3, one of the bills that the Senate, uh, or the House, I should say, um, has been uh, considering, it didn't just have IPI uh, baked into it. It had IPI plus controls that would have prevented companies from raising that one standard unified price uh, above where it's set now. So it would have actually forced, it basically would have now taken prices that previously were based on what, you know, all these various countries were willing to pitch in, you know, that little, uh, that little help that they were offering, it would have forced American prices down to those levels. It was just a complicated way of saying, we want industry to uh, offer a deep, deep cut. And no surprise, they modeled it as a trillion dollars of savings over a decade, which is $100 billion per year. Mind you, uh, the US pays $271 billion per year towards branded drugs. 
it's actually quite a modest part of our uh, total economy, about 1.3%. But 271 billion, uh, you know, is uh, if you shaved 100 billion off that, that's 38%, I, I believe, a 38%, you know, discount off of what the US uh, pays for branded drugs today would absolutely decimate the industry. Like there's no other way to make the, the uh, math work yet. Somehow some economists managed to give the Congressional Budget Office the impression that, oh, that would only result in, what was it, like eight to 15 fewer drugs over the next decade. And I can tell you, if you're gonna shave 38% off of this massive industry's budget when its profit margins are in the teens, there's no other outcome than that you will have a dramatic reduction in uh, the incentives to uh, keep funding R&D. So the so it comes to you know the, the next the next other the next point uh, the next major point um, that you kind of introduce your book with is this idea that um, one of the big problems that you see is that insurance insurance is just not doing what it should be doing. That, uh, that, um, that, you know, the reason folks can't afford medications is because, you know, more recently out-of-pocket costs are high. And what is the point of doing that? Um, because now you're going to significantly um, influence uh, whether or not uh, patients take the drug because they have to pay out of their own, own pocket. And so, you know, at some point you even bring up the fact, you know, insurers, I think you use the term heartless, um, uh, that these insurance plans are heartless. Um, but are you know are and so you know you're 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 a big proponent of uh, universal health care you want health insurance that'll pay for for everything especially drugs is that what uh, would that be no, accurate no, wait, wait, wait. Uh, just to be clear um universal coverage universal coverage uh, for it is impossible for any human being in in america to afford any meaningful aspect of health care mm -hmm. without the benefit of insurance uh, unless, of course, they're healthy, in which case that's nice, right? So uh, healthcare in America is unaffordable. Uh, and that's because we actually have technology. We've got things we can do. Back when it was just like your, your uh, you know, doctor that would walk from town to town and, you know, uh, you know, healthcare was whatever he happened to have in his medicine bag, maybe a few leeches. Okay, maybe some people could afford from the doctor. But today we've got hospitals and emergency rooms and ORs and we've got all this technology and all these drugs and all these procedures. There's things we can do. And just to keep all those people employed, uh, dividing that total number by the uh, sliver of the American population that actually needs care in any given year comes to an astronomical number per person uh, that's sick. But it's actually not an astronomical number if it's, you know, across the entire working population. Um, well, maybe I should say that healthcare services are growing to be, you know, an uncomfortably uh, large number. But drugs, you know, no. 271 billion divided by the 17 trillion of income that Americans have, it is entirely possible to make that amount of money going to uh, branded drugs affordable for whoever needs them, right? So. Everybody needs insurance. And I believe that all patients should be able to get, afford, access uh, whatever drug their doctors appropriately prescribe. So 
When I uh, propose in the book that we dramatically lower or even eliminate out-of-pocket costs for drugs, um, I do believe that physicians are the uh, learned intermediaries, as the law considers them to be, who know what is appropriate and what's not. Maybe they need a nudge from an electronic uh, medical health record or something to remind them uh, you can prescribe a generic statin first before you go to a PCSK9. But I don't believe that it's appropriate to deputize patients with high out-of-pocket costs and leverage their fear and anxiety so Peter, second-guessing look, doctors. So Peter, look at the, let's look at the experience of the PCSK9 inhibitors. I'm sorry, I hope you have, you have a little bit of extra time, Peter. Usually we're done in about an hour, but this is- No, I'm happy to is, go. Uh, it, has it only been an hour? <laughs> it's only been an hour. But, but let's go through the experience. So this is, where, this is where we'll have a little bit of a discussion where, um, no, I mean, clearly, Look, I think the pharmaceutical industry is amazing. Uh, they have, in terms of what they've produced, remarkable, uh, you know, cures for, uh, not, well, sorry, I mean, they've made HIV livable just in my lifetime from me being, you know, a young doctor watching, uh, watching uh, a young trainee watching just the ravages of HIV and AIDS and, yep, and these. A lot of progress. In, in, in mostly poor, disadvantaged communities, by the way, all right? And, and look what, look what, look what, uh, look what's happened. Um, you know, immunosuppressive drugs have made transplant work. Uh, I, I could go on and on. So I, I'm, I'm no. Uh, I think the the, the value of uh, the pharmaceutical company, the value of the American pharmaceutical company in terms of what it does for the globe. Um, you know, there's a little, little doubt that uh, there's a massive value add there. Um, but you know, as in all things, there's there's gaming and there's an issue with um, what value are you really. Uh, you know, can, can, can one do better? Can one, is, is there a more efficient system um, uh, that one can, go, one can move towards? And, and there are certainly many examples. You talk, you talk about uh, Daraprim, um, you know, uh, a drug that is available for not much money at all elsewhere, but because yep. of regulatory barriers, because of- That's an old drug. We paid off the mortgage on it. Sorry? It's an old drug and we paid off the mortgage on it. That's right. exactly one of those drugs that should be right. available Right, we had high quality for the rest of all time. Right, and so you speak strongly for the fact that we should take away the regulatory stuff that you know allows companies like Turing and uh, what's his name to uh, Shkreli to kind of jack up prices and yeah, the loopholes. Like right, loopholes so were, that, that's so that's that's of course the the um, the uh, uh, the stuff that's uh, on the that that's the easy low lying fruit and stuff, right? But but take but you know one of the issues um, is this idea of uh, what is what is efficacious? What's beneficial? So take PCSK9 inhibitors that you brought up is a great example. Yeah. Uh, statins statins have been you know a fairly remarkable class of drugs which uh, uh, are used incredibly widely by cardiologists to absolutely you know, lower you know somebody comes in on the LDL who's had a prior event uh, in the 180s and uh, we take their LDL down to the 70s and we think you know over a 10 year time span you know relative risk reduction over that time that we're doing something good, something really good in terms of reducing yeah, that, the risk of adding. Yeah, that sounds like a, a patient for whom the statins actually worked. So right, exactly. But but here's the, you know, here's the thing, you know, you, know um, you have the PCSK9 inhibitors that came on the market, and the problem for the PCS, PCSK9 inhibitors were that statins are so darn good, right? So you have, you know, so the studies were done, the studies yeah. were done on patients who had an average LDL of 90. Um, yeah. And they drove the, those LDLs remarkably from 90 to 50. but the benefit from going to 90 to 50 is much different than the benefit from going from, uh, you know, 180 to 90. So there's, you know, as would be yeah. expected, there's some law of diminishing terms in terms of what 
one gets by doing this. So yet they, they did work. They they showed improvements in cardiovascular outcomes. You know, they did, but the but the but the amount was less. the amount was less. I'm uh, with you. I'm so, with you. But and the issue will go generic, right? And they, they, they will go generic. They will go generic. But the, the issue, the right, right. But yeah. but the issue, of course, is in this in this period of time. Initially, the drugs are priced at some you know twelve thousand dollars a year, uh, and 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 the payers, you know, both did paying. They said you know, unless, and, and, and the way they did, the way they kind of nudged us as doctors, because as you're saying, the learned intermediaries that we are, right? Patient comes to yeah. LDL 90. Hey, if, 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 if we can get their LDL, I mean, I, I would tell the patients, I was like, look, you know, yes, you can have an additional risk lowering by getting to 50. Um, you're already on a max statin. Um, so we could sure. give you a PCSK9 if you want. And guess what? Some of the patients said, sure, I don't mind getting injected if I can reduce my risk even more. And I would write it. Yeah. This is early on. I would write it. And you know, boom! I would get a denial and saying, no, no, yeah. you know, you have to prior auth it and do X, Y, and Z. I, I get it. And and so you know, I was faced with the decision again. You know, it was a practice. We have we have lots of resources that we're using towards doing all sorts of things. And the question is, do I invest an hour of some some person's time to try to fight this thing and send them the? No, I totally get why you out. wouldn't. I mean, it's the so, insurance company's way of functionally saying no. Right. right? So 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 I would. Of a right. real problem in America, if I had well, to worry that they'll do that to an Alzheimer's treatment, that they'd be like, "Oh, I'm not technically saying no. I'm simply putting up right. 16 pages of forms for a doctor to fill out for every patient who objectively meets the criteria for this drug." You know, and then later, by the way, when I do finally reluctantly, uh, you know, grant prior authorization as yeah. an insurance company, I'm still going to impose an out-of-pocket cost that is meant to nudge that patient to do what not right. take a drug that I have agreed is appropriate for him. Yeah, the system is discouraging but, use of drugs that we've successfully developed, which in 20, 30 years, when not just these antibodies that you know annoyingly have to be injected once every two weeks or a couple of injections once a month, right? But actually RNAi, right? Yeah. Is what's coming. Yeah, when you yeah. can give a subcutaneous injection once every six yeah. months, and that is a chemical that is much more readily genericized. And so when in 20 years, that drug yeah. is as cheap as it can be, you've got uh, generic uh, you know, RNAi, PCSK9 inhibitors, but won't you inject the person with yeah. the LDLs of 90 or 110 yeah. or whatever, knock them down knowing the benefits? Absolutely, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that, that that we can't debate what we should pay for the drug now. So what happened with the PCSK9 story, for instance, was yeah. I would go to the patient and say, hey, look, I'm sorry, <laughs> I, 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 we can't get this drug prior approved without a significant effort. And yep. in your particular case, the conversation we would have was, look, you're already at 90. Um, the benefit, it's not, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't, you know, if you want, you can pay for the drug on your own, uh, which nobody, nobody said okay to. Yeah. But so the only folks that we really went through that process for was the folks that were having recurrent events with their LDL of 90, or if their LDL was 180 on a max dose statin and on Zetia, and they still yep. remember, and then we would say, all right, it is worth it for you. So yep. we kind of had this conversation, you kind of came to it, and and I, and, and guess what happened? In, in in a matter of two years, what's happened to the prices of, of PCSK9? And, and by the way, the PCSK9 story is interesting because there were two branded drugs that yeah, were available that, right. that could play off one another. So that's right. So. You know, by, by the way, it's not so like they didn't know that they would have to come down on price. I mean, right, but, but every that happened when it launches a drug knows 
that insurance companies are going to put up barriers, not to right. mention the insurance companies want to extract right. their own rebates or kickbacks. Right. And right. so the launch price of any drug has to be higher to allow for that nonsense, right? Or place, competition, yeah. something right. to make them, the insurance companies right. feel like they did their jobs. Right. Mind you, insurance in America doesn't actually want the cost of healthcare to go down. They get their 15% right, off right, right, total right. pie. No, right. They want yeah. the whole thing to grow. They would like nothing more than for healthcare to be 50% of the economy in the next 30 years if they can. They just don't like any one cost creeping up on them next year during their budget so uh, yeah i understand what you're saying all right but but the insurance but but the insurance but the payers right my point is is that in this time when we're trying to figure out how much of a how much of an investment we need to be making for that long-term thing in that time without the insurance without the payers saying without the payers setting up these barriers we would we would never have gotten i mean that was their way of negotiating and i'm I'm asking you first of all i'm not i'm not is it is I'm not opposed an, to them playing two companies right. off. No, no, not just two companies, but are you, But you would be opposed to them balking to say, hey, look, the FDA approved it. If a, dr- no, if a doctor I, writes I, it, you I, should, you should cover it. Absolutely, right? I'm absolutely opposed to insurance companies stepping in and saying, oh, we acknowledge that this patient you know, would experience a benefit from this drug, that they've proven that there's a reduction in their yeah. risk of death and stroke and heart attack, whatever, yeah. uh, you know, from this. We just don't think their life is worth it. I'm opposed to that because the moment America says, that's cool, that's okay, we need someone looking out for our budgets, it's really essential that we spend $800 billion on healthcare administration and paperwork. It's absolutely essential that we uh, spend a ton of money on corn subsidies. All those costs are important. By the way, Fortnite is a really worthwhile expense for our children. All those expenses are important. So you know what? Let's cut back on what we spend on drugs that will inexpensively save people's lives for the rest of all time. Right. Yeah, I have a problem with America doing that because it's the end of biomedical innovation if we accept it. But Peter, if we, it, are it, but every, every, every new drug isn't the same. So it's not like transplant where if I don't transplant this person, they will die, right? In, in, in yeah. the case of statins, in the case of PCSK9s of an LDL of, with an LDL of 90, yeah. Um, you know, you have to treat X number of people at, for X amount of time for one person to not have it. So that conversation about about value and how much it's worth to you, which yeah, isn't 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 that a worthwhile one to be had but well, the, we between can. a doctor we can. and a patient, we as can. opposed to as a, as opposed to an insurance company I, saying, I, well, I don't if, I don't think that it's a conversation that a patient can have. See, a patient just had a heart attack, and right. a patient has not taken classes on health economics or any of well, that. And so the, the question is, frankly, whether a doctor can even have that conversation, because last I heard that economics wasn't taught in medical school either. Right. So right. The bottom line is that uh, doctors, you know, they, uh, they take a Hippocratic oath, right. right, which I don't believe has a very big financial component to it, as much as people are starting to introduce the idea of financial right. toxicity. Yeah. I think that neither doctor nor patient are equipped to have the economic discussion uh, the, what they can have is a conversation about the medical appropriateness of a given therapy that the FDA has blessed and said it is safe and effective for the following patients with this label. And so a doctor is there to figure out, is this drug going to help this patient? We as a society have to figure out what tools do we want to give doctors to use, knowing that doctors are not going to be in the best position to apply financial analysis to see what's worth it. So. I think that, uh, for example, 
uh, a different approach that insurance companies could take for medical appropriateness is to say, uh, we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt, you know, you know, doctor cardiologist, that you will prescribe uh, uh, drugs to the best of your knowledge appropriately, but we will review the data. We will compare your prescribing habits to those of uh, everybody else. And if we see that you are deviating notably from you know, the uh, you know, prescribing habits of a typical cardiologist, we will have a conversation with you. Our medical director, who is medically trained, will have a conversation with you, doctor cardiologist, who is medically trained, and we will talk about whether you happen to be getting a lot more uh, serious patients and that's why you're prescribing more PCSK9s, or are you in the pocket of the drug companies? You know, did you really enjoy that $15 pizza so much that you got to have more and you're going to prescribe a ton more PCSK9s? You know, or do you just not understand standard of care? In which case, you know, go take another course and we'd like to see your prescribing habits more in line. It is possible to police this stuff after the fact. You do not have to be so paranoid about preventing every case of overutilization that you cause the problem that we have today, which is under treatment. There are people that are dying and suffering from their diseases that do not need to be because the treatments are right there. And we shouldn't pretend that those treatments are expensive because in fact they're not. The each incremental dose of the PCSK9 is cheap. And if you want the PCSK9, but you just don't want it used for you know, uh, 5 million people, you only want it used for 500,000 people, then again, to the extent that we, the industry, learn how much you will arbitrarily narrow the patient population down, then the math that innovators are using to figure out whether to pursue something is to divide a, you know, a large enough number by the number of patients and price accordingly. So it's just hard to adjust the price after the fact, but it sounds to me like maybe the way that these PCSK9s are used saved only for the patients that are uh, you know, so badly off that you're willing to fill out 16 pages of prior auth is maybe they should have been priced a lot higher for that small population of desperate patients. And then the companies would have made you know, the, uh, the kind of uh, revenue that they were projecting for a drug that was as big a breakthrough as that was. They simply assumed that uh, America had more heart, that insurance companies would at least authorize the use of these drugs on label, right? Now, what I've heard actually from talking to some payers is um, that they actually find that patients do get prescribed these drugs, PCSK9s, they just drop off at a really fast pace because they have to be injected every two weeks. No one feels their LDL. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're like, ah, whatever, I'm sure I'm fine. And so there's a, a very poor adherence Maybe they don't like their co-pays. You know, co-payments certainly contribute to poor adherence. And so it may just be that the poor sales of PCSK9s are not nearly as much due to the barriers that these uh, heartless uh, payers have put up. It may be that America's actually had more heart than we give it credit for when it came to PCSK9s. It's just that the first generation of these PCSK9 inhibitors were not convenient enough, you know, uh, to match the... Uh, you know, kind of um, chronic, uh, silent nature of cardiovascular risk. The Interesting, Peter, because I've heard the uh, 
the exact argument made the other way around for the statins, meaning people are non-compliant with their statins because it is so difficult to take a medication every day, as opposed to the PCSK9, where it's just twice a month, and then that's it. I yeah. mean, I, in fact, you know, there's a prominent uh, Ethan Weiss, a cardiologist, who just made that exact point on Twitter the other day. He said, finally, the great thing about PCSK9 is that the patients are much more compliant and much more easy to stick with it. <laughs> you know what? I think he might be right, but not about these PCSK9s. I think that what we're going to get soon it, from the uh, RNAi uh, product uh, is once every six months subcutaneous injection. Uh, and uh, I do take a statin every day myself. Um, and uh, I actually wonder you know, if I had a choice between you know, a statin and uh, that I take every day and a sub-Q injection that I get once every six months, which one I would take. I think I'd probably take the injection once every six months so I didn't have to remember, I didn't have to, you know, travel with it. I miss a few doses here and there, which isn't the, the worst thing in the world. But the reality is that the PCSK9 that I would be getting once every six months, um, I completely understand why, while it's branded, payers are going to be absolutely draconian about making sure that I am taking my statin first and foremost, it's generic. Uh, and only if I have, uh, you know, true residual cardiovascular risk, uh, and on label for the PCSK9, they would allow me to take the once every six months sub Q injection. If they don't, if they say, no, your life's not worth it. I still want to put up roadblocks. You know, uh, I don't care if you've got a higher rate of uh, death and patients are clamoring for that injection once every six months. And doctors are saying it's really easy to give. They're right there in my office. Then I will be worried because it means that the industry will have delivered a really great drug, a really convenient technology, one that uh, basically it takes a form factor that makes adherence really easy. And American insurance companies still will be doing everything in their power to dissuade that kind of innovation. I think that would be a turning point for innovation in America. And I think it's going to uh, have to, it's going to make a lot of people rethink. So what will America pay when we but, have a breakthrough but, like an Alzheimer's but, drug? But Peter, there are multiple different, I mean, again, if it, you know, it's this issue of value and clearly the way you value PCSK9s may be very different than the way many different segments of the population value things. This is the whole thing with talking about societal value, right? Yeah, society society clearly values big, broad things, right? Society values, we were talking earlier, no, nobody living in... Um... Well, actually, let me, uh, let me uh, okay. maybe take over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. okay, well. uh, that's on, on that point, so the point that you're making, what society values. Uh, Peter, can I, can I go back to the sort of the premise? I thought it was very interesting, the premise um, of your book and, and what you talked about, this idea of a social contract between the pharmaceutical industry and, and the people. Yes. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting because the, the idea of the social contract, if you believe in it or not, I mean, it's um, it's between the state and the people, right? It's I mean, that's yeah. the original idea. I tend to think of it more as a metaphor and and maybe even a myth. You know, it's it's how we like to think about how we engage in our political life because there's no actual contract that people sign. And then when you have a contract, there should be a third party overseeing, you know, making sure that the terms of the contract are, are enforced, whereas when it's between the people and the government, there's no real third party. It's always, it's always the government that's the third party. But, but, but at any rate, uh, in this case, 
you're proposing a social contract between a private, I mean, an industry, right? The private sector or part of the people and the people. Is that, is that right? Or, I mean, that's, I mean, is, it, is there, is there, well, um, let's not take it too far, you know, okay, the, but... the industry is people too. So it's really a contract among people, right? We have 330 million people in the U S right. and it just so happens that ballpark about 5 million of them have these skills, whether it be scientists or accountants or what have you, or manufacturing people to work on these particular problems of diseases and how we can solve them with medicines. Okay. And we've got a million who are physicians and we've got a bunch of people who are really good at, at acting and you know, they give us all the content we get on Netflix and all money is just labor. And so out of 330 million people, do I like the fact that 5 million of us are not focused on how we grow more food or how we make clothing or how we build shelter? You know, the uh, jobs of these 5 million people, this small sliver of the population is how can we, you know, come up with ways to make sure that our children don't scratch themselves bloody from uh, eczema when they're one or two years old or, you know, die of anaphylaxis, you know, from a nut in their food or something. I mean, I like the idea that there are 5 million, uh, you know, people in our country that are working on those problems. I don't think we need to repurpose those people to create Fortnite 7 or build another nuclear bomb or, you know, uh, you know, build another McDonald's or whatever. I think we're good on all those fronts. Other people can handle that. Right. But uh, why? Uh, I mean, th that's a proposal. I mean, it's, it's your, your opinion and you're obviously I, I among, among the five million. Support of public so, opinion. Right. Man. Correct. So correct. But I mean, why? Why? Um, I mean, people, the Green New Deal, right? People are making uh, sort of similar arguments. They're saying, look, the planet depends on low energy, you know, uh, green yes. energy producers. We should really invest a lot more into green energy because otherwise, I mean, it's really something that that's right. The, the public is incapable of argue, you know, of of um, taking action, and so we have to subsidize the the uh, the green new deal energies and uh, sector and so forth. It's true, as a society, and, we have to act, right. Right? which means that we have to take money from one sector to the next against their will, Absolutely. right? I mean, okay, we should. so 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 you want subsidies for the pharmaceutical industries because well, I, you know, I don't you know think why, it's a, just to be clear though, why do you call yeah. it subsidies? I mean, um, I, unless you mean all payments are a form of subsidy, I suppose, but it's correct. just right. I want incentive and funding for 5 million people to be clothed and fed and, and work on this. You want tax dollars to be used to, right? I mean, you want taxes right. to be used, whether, I mean, right. or, I mean, or call insurance premiums, whatever you want to call it. Correct. It's all society's money. So whether we want to make arbitrary distinctions of insurance premiums or taxes, it really doesn't matter. Right. So. Yes, I want 5 million out of 330 million Americans working on drugs. In fact, maybe I'd like six or seven. And I think maybe we could take some people that uh, today are really busy uh, filling out all kinds of paperwork that they you know, use to harass patients to pay bills because we've got an incredible, incredibly shattered uh, system. Um, maybe I would like a streamlined system with less bureaucracy so we can repurpose a couple million of uh, those um, uh, folks to helping out elsewhere where they might be more productive health coaches to help people, right. you know, live healthier lifestyles. I think you guys covered that in one of your, uh, podcasts 
right? But, but so, I, I, how, how would you answer the person that would say, listen, this sounds a little self-serving because I mean, you're, you're, you're part of this industry already. And you started the, the podcast talking about the, the gripes that people have against the pharmaceutical industry. Okay. It's absolutely <laughs> self-serving. I right. am a father with two children and I have parents and I have all these people that I love and I so badly want uh, you know, America to keep doing what it's really good at. I am cursed with the fact that I actually know we can make a difference on all these fronts. And if I were ignorant of that, if I thought, well, I mean, surely there's nothing we can do about, you know, Duchenne muscular dystrophy or sickle cell disease, fine. Then I could take that attitude and say that let's work on something we can fix, you know, like climate change. But I know that we can make a difference in the lives of these children and uh, all these people. But and so for us to sit around with the tools to be able to fix these uh, problems, and we just need funding for this industry, like everyone's got to eat. So for us to have the tools to do it, as long as society will pay the bills uh, and to be told by society, we don't want you to because other things are more important. I'm willing to have that discussion. It is essential that we all figure out what's most important, but 1.3% of our GDP going towards developing new treatments for diseases that plague us, you know, cannot possibly be the pool of money that we, uh, you know, take to pay for other important things. But Peter, can we, waste okay. in our let's, society. Let's go, we can, let's go for the waste first. And there's plenty of it in, you know, the healthcare sector. There's plenty. Let, and after we have used up all the waste and now it's just a choice that we have to make among a bunch of really good causes, then let's have the conversation that you want to have and talk about, is it climate change or is it medicine? Because they're both essential if we want our kids and grandkids to be healthy. And maybe we do need to pare back on biotechnology for biomedical innovation and apply biotechnology to climate change for a while till we've solved climate change. I'm open to so that. Quick, so quick, that. A, a quick aside before we come back to this idea of value and, 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 and societal value and how, how one comes up with that is, that, is that when you look at, when you talk about when you talk about, uh, you know, you, you look back at the history and uh, of, of, of things that have been decided by society as saying, all right, we, we must we must pay for this because this is a societal good. OK, uh, yeah. we need to somehow uh, you don't like the word subsidy, but we, we must somehow figure out how to make it happen. All right. So, I mean, uh, that's why yes. the word subsidy seems to fit. Um, and you look at housing. Right. Um, well, if you consider what you pay McDonald's, you know, uh, to be a well, subsidy, then fine. Call, you could call anything a subsidy. But society... Well, meaning meaning when we say... Wants. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, no, because th there is a subsidy there because, you know, there's obviously a corn subsidy. There's there's massive agricultural subsidies that allow that allow that hamburger to cost $5 and is in, within the reach of whatever. Yeah, yeah, but but, yeah. but if you look at, if you look at, if you look at some things that we've decided we must subsidize, all right, um, uh, or, or we must, we must have. Uh, we and, must if you look, and you look at health if you look at healthcare, you look at you look at uh, uh, the hi higher education system, right? Since 1997, um, the the prices uh, have changed something like uh, you know two it's 200 percent more more expensive. Uh, in those items that we have said that you know what they're so important that we must be able we must provide access to those to everything. You've seen what happened what's happened to college uh, tuitions, correct? On uh, uh, by the same token, what has happened to software? What has happened to personal computers what has happened to tvs you know these things in real dollars uh and sorry not, not only 
not by inflation adjusted, dollars, inflation I mean inflation adjusted, adjusted mm-hmm. dollars have have come down in price, right? So really, there are there yeah. are dangerous this, there are dangerous come down in price. This has not come down in price. This has actually gone up in price, no. but it's also gone up in quality, and people choose to buy this. It is right. so great that people, you know, uh, sink an inordinate amount of their discretionary income into this because it's actually, it doesn't feel discretionary anymore. We all got to be uh, linked up. And Apple is one of the most profitable companies in the world, despite the fact that, you know, apparently Moore's law has been, you know, dropping the price of computing power dramatically. This thing should cost 25 cents. So how come we're paying a fortune for it? So I disagree. Well, smart, I don't think that well, smartphones, well, smartphone, smartphones, I mean, there's obviously many alternatives to the iPhone. X, yeah, do you X, see any of those X, in circulation? Is, what's that? I don't see too many of those alternatives in circulation. Well, I mean, you know, there, there's, there's, I mean, again, that, that has to do with, that has to do with rich America. That maybe the crowd you hang out with mostly has. <laughs> so the crowd, I mean, it may be that, it may be that, you know, call it in college, college kids may have, you know, they have cheaper phones. The point is, if you want to buy, yes, the, the, the cost of a Ferrari, right? I mean, you're holding, you're holding up, you know, the iPhone, which is the best smartphone. The price of Ferraris, yes, has gone up over, over time, but the price of, the price of uh, cars or the price of uh, uh, clothing or the price of uh, TVs is a great example, right? Like there's a 60 inch, it may not be the greatest 4K OLED TV, but, there, but those prices have in general come down. Whereas stuff that we have said, we must have, it is, it is not just um, a, ch- a choice, but a right to have, the prices of those have massively expanded. And some of the, and some- uh, Have they though? I'm, I'm not following the logic. We well, just talked about drugs go generic and they, right fall dramatically in price. Oh, yeah. So, you know, when the HIV drugs all thoroughly go generic, you will find that, you know, they cost next to nothing and yet they are no. just as effective. So yes. why why are we no, talking we... about drugs as if suddenly they don't adhere? Yeah, to no, I, yeah, I guess I should be healthcare health the, the amount that the average American over since the 1970s pays You mean what doctors healthcare. charge? You mean doctors salaries? No, no, but, but Peter, we, we started the conversation about about yeah. the, the the point yeah. that that drug prices are too high. I mean, that's that's the the whole thing. The, the impetus for your book was was the outrage about. Uh, yeah. So we're not but, talking no, about I, generics after they go off patents, but we're yeah. talking about. But, but no, we are you know, talking. But, but that's the whole point of the book. We have to be talking about generics yeah. and brands at the same time. You can't just well, focus uh, on the new stuff. Right, but the premiums that the premiums that Americans are paying, Peter, right, the premiums that Americans are paying now for healthcare yeah. versus what they were paying in the 1970s has has gone up a significant amount. Now, I, I told, I'm with you, generic yeah, almost awesome. entirely because of healthcare services. No, no, I, 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 I'm with you, and you know we have this yeah. debate all the time with people that attack us. We say, oh, physicians are only selling. I'm not attacking you. I'm just stating no, the facts. It, no, no, no. Yeah. of the expenses are for our services. Everything yes. other than branded drugs. Therefore, 90% of all the increases in Branded but, drugs are not a higher right. fraction of healthcare than they than they yeah, were. But, no, no, they're not a higher fraction, but they, uh, how much we're paying? I mean, how much we're paying for those branded drugs has gone up since the 1970s. Yes, right? meaning yes, it, ha- it has because we've invented right. more. Have we invented more so, doctors, so, or are doctors just getting paid more than they were? Right. So that's that, we have invented more drugs, and then they become you know cheap commodities, and we have to invent new ones. If America is still spending. $271 billion 15 years from now on branded drugs, it's because every drug you know of and vilify and hate and think is too expensive today, I'm not saying no. you, but the public, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. has gone generic. No one's talking about it anymore. It's you know easily affordable. It's taken for granted. And we must have invested, invented an entirely new set of drugs 
that America is paying $271 billion for. It takes a lot of hustle for all these people, 5 million people, all these scientists to invent an entirely new set of drugs. Tell me something, will the healthcare services industry have completely reinvented itself and every hospital and every doctor will actually be a cheap commodity and you will all invented like entirely new robotic systems and things like that, that that are add to our standard of care? Or will you still be running the same hospitals, the same ORs, It'll you'll still be you just grayer and you'll be charging even more because naturally salaries go up. Well, how would we know? I mean, I, I uh, well, we know because that's it. We can no, look at the last 15 years and last 30 No, but that's 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 uh, that's, that's sort of a, uh, you know, it's a it's a post hoc fallacy. I mean, you can't you can't you know, you have to do a thought experiment. You can't you can't just historically. I mean, all the our industry healthcare has been subsidized massively. There's no argument about that. Doctors have benefited in their salaries. Hospitals have benefited in their bottom lines. The yes. pharmaceutical industry has benefited in its profitability. Uh, uh, in oh, general, so yeah. so I don't think there's sure. any argument about 80% that. Profit okay. margins, sure. Okay, so so, so but the, the question is that at the same time, Anish is pointing out to is consumer goods in industries that are less subsidized seem to increase in quality and decrease in price per and they decrease in price massively. I mean, the phone, for if you look at the equivalent um, uh, uh, technological capability of a phone and the number of hours that an average salary worker salary would would have to work to buy a phone 30 years ago or 20 years ago versus the number of hours that one has to spend to get an iPhone today, it's massively less, right? The, the, so the, Actually, the consumer I'm, goods are I'm much, not, I'm much not more affordable. Sure that, that, math, that math holds up. You can buy a landline phone super uh, cheap today, right? Uh, yeah. Probably find some phone for 15 bucks. And it is like the best landline phone that has ever existed, except the standard has gone up and you basically can't function in today's economy. Your uh, uh, company hires you, they expect you to be available, you know, wherever you may be, you can't just limit yourself to a landline in many cases. You know, so actually, I believe that, you know, the world drags you along and forces you to upgrade your technologies. You can't buy a cheap horse and a buggy whip these days anymore, you have but, to get a but, car. But, but so I don't think put- it's quite that straightforward. But yes, on the whole, I agree with you that manufactured right. goods Manufactured goods become commodities and the standard of care goes up and quality of life goes up and drugs adhere to that and healthcare services do not. Land and labor just go up over time. Only manufactured goods give us the kinds of economies that you're talking about. So I'm not going to apologize for the fact that as long as all drugs go generic, not all do, and we do need new legislation regulation in order to make sure that they do. But if all drugs were to go generic, then they would remain qualitatively, just because of this function of being able to drop off a cliff, they would be the most cost-effective aspect of all of healthcare. And let's just run an experiment. Let's just nationalize all drugs. Starting tomorrow, basically uh, the system says, we're just not paying uh, anything more than, slightly more than the cost of production. Immediately companies will say, well, what can we do? Nothing. So I guess let's just sell what we have already for whatever price will generate incremental, you know, a little bit of profit, fine. Shut down all R&D because you can't justify the return on it. And instantly, instantly our spending on healthcare will drop by like seven or 8%, right? Because all branded drugs will have instantly been genericized. 
So uh, we will end up saving something like uh, 0.7 or uh, let's just say 0.8 or 0.9% of our GDP. Great. 5 million people put out of work, 5 million people who are trained, skilled in some ways to uh, you know, solve diseases and help bring about drugs. They will be repurposed to what end? I mean, yeah, so, uh, but no, no one is arguing, right? No one here is arguing to nationalize the, the no, 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 but let's just run the experiment. Sure. Right. Let's just run the, the experiment. Okay. So you've just saved a bunch of money. Meanwhile, what will happen to healthcare costs over time? They will keep going up, right? In fact, they will go up even faster because the hip replacement surgeries that we could have averted with a new drug that helps strengthen our bones so that we don't break them and we don't need the surgery, that will never be invented. And so now we will see that 4% uh, increase in uh, you know, the cost of hip replacement surgery, the spending on hip replacement surgery for the rest of all time until of course we what? Uh, put all hip surgeons on uh, salary and control yeah. their price. But the problem so, is that hip yeah. replacements, you know, the, the problem is that the price, the prices in health, the price mechanism in healthcare seems to be broken, but it, precisely because it is backed up by, you know, the ability of the federal government to go into massive amounts of debt to pay for it, right? So, so a price, you know, you know, at one place, a, a hip replacement at the uh, Surgical Center of Oklahoma, um, uh, at Keith Smith uh, is a is a anesthesiologist that runs a cash only. Basically, basically a cash only business where he, he goes, all right, uh, if you want a hip replacement, it's this much, you know, and it, it's like, so I don't know how much it's, yeah. it's like one tenth the price of what the hospital down the street charges. Now, again, hospital has different, has obviously a little bit more overhead at the 24 hour ER, has more staff, et cetera. But it seems hard to, to understand why it is, you know, you have costs that are 10 times as much you know hospital margins are also tiny sliver you know you every every hospital you go to they say we're barely eking by right and yeah and, i'm not a, i'm not accusing hospitals of uh you know uh i am you know, i am profiteers. I, no i am, I am, I, am. I, am. I i i'm accusing them <laughs> because okay, because okay, fair enough but they're <laughs> because really they're, because they're the well, no, I think that, that because they, their costs or whatever it is, they say they are. So the marginal costs are, you know, driven by the by the expenses that are coming in. And so where's the money, the though, by the way? Help me understand this. If indeed they can charge anything they want, then where does the money go? Because it's, like it's not like nurses are making a killing. Nurses, nurses do well. Doctors do very well. Um, well administrators well, like, do well. They make five times more than they need to make nurses. Well, I don't know. That, that sort of gets to this question of what should people make? And I, I, that's a hard thing. You know, I'll just say the NHS, which is tightly centrally controlled. Everything is salaried, right? Nurses yeah. nurses there start at 20,000 pounds a year. The nurses here will start at 60 and in a, in a matter of four or five years will be Do making 80. they have 80, debt from, 80 from universities? Like, nurses? are we going to talk about how much uh, universities, how much, uh, you know, the... Um, right. You know, right, regulations right. that dictate who can do what procedure Licenses and how much and education all that stuff. Yeah. Need, right? Right, uh, right. How much debt that imposes. Right. And, you know, that all that has to be paid off. I mean, my understanding is doctors are practically indentured servants, you know, <laughs> for like 15 years <laughs> after they graduate, you know, because they've got so much debt. Right. So well, in the end, but, you know, what we call high uh, prices but, for surgery right. are but, really just paying but off. But Peter, money. I mean, the, the point here is that all these arguments cannot be solved by sitting down and having a social contract and saying, you know, agreeing together socially what your drug is worth, what your industry is worth, what Anisha's hospital is worth, what the nurse is worth, taking into account the debt and the this and the that. They can't. And normally, well, there's a, a, a market price mechanism that takes place that 
allows allocation, you know, to spontaneously go to where the services that are valued the most oh, and it? away we, from the services that, that are valued the least. But so, Michelle, we, we just so, talked about education, nurses, hospitals, surgeons, drugs, yeah. accounting firms, le uh, you know, legal firms, drug Food, manufacturers, whatever. all these patients. We, we just talked about what I, I think might add up collectively to like, what, like 30% of the American economy? At some point, when you say like, oh, well, the market has to function, but no, I'm not going to describe this 30% of the American economy as the market. I think maybe we need to agree on what a market is. I think this is maybe a complicated market, but I definitely think it's a market. And I think that as long as drugs, you know, ultimately succumb to the law of the jungle, the ultimate libertarian, you know, bastion of fairness, you know, when all regulations go away and, you know, Lots the subsidies of, uh, go away. Yeah, <laughs> subsidies go away. That's it. Like okay. it's just you know you and uh, and uh, and a rock in the woods, and you know you're, you're back to the wilderness. Like and uh, only drug prices drop in that whole thing. Universities. But, but don't why only drug? I'm not saying that only. I'm not saying that that only only the drug industry should be you know deregulated and and uh, the subsidies uh, no, no, should no, be pulled. What, what I'm saying is from, but, uh, the drug right. industry is the least regulated of everything you just named. And my yeah. job here with you guys, with this book, is actually pretty narrow because you're right. I cannot encapsulate this whole thing in my head. I cannot make a case for the entire American economy. <laughs> but I am here to remind the American public and Congress and everybody entering the biotech industry and every doctor and everybody that actually the drug industry is the least of the regulated. It's the one that is already subject to the most natural price control, as you alluded to, its products go off a cliff and become cheap over time, like phones and you know cars and everything else. Like we are abiding by the rules of a free market system far more, even if not perfectly, you know, to some of your points, far more than anything else that you've named so far. You know, I'm willing, I'm willing to accept that. I'm willing to accept that. But my point is that you should you should try to move more in that direction. I think to the extent that you abide by the rules of the free market, that's very laudable. And I agree that the pharmaceutical industry provides a lot of value and that even without the subsidies, patients would, you know, people would, would pay a, a fair price, but the demand would be what it is. And, and I think instead, instead, yeah, no, no insurance, no, oh, no, no insurance. Uh, I'll no, tell you what you'll get. No you'll insurance. get Botox. You'll have Botox and wrinkle fillers. Well, uh, uh, listen, know. at the end of the day, if that's what people want, that's what people want. But that's, and, but that, and you but that's, that's not, that's not right? going to be what people want. That's not yeah, going to be what but, people want. But, but people also like, you know, uh, to, uh, you know, underinvest in uh, infrastructure, and you know, in 50 years, our pipes are going to break. You know, and people underinvest in themselves. Um, they don't invest Peter, in the military. You know, uh, they're all. They can also be raging racists, and you know, commit all kinds of crimes. So why don't we just like not pay any taxes? You know, since taxes are a form of subsidies for you know civilization. I mean, what are you really talking about? No, 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 no. But, but wait, wait, wait. We're, we're off the rails. Okay. No, no, no. no. Simple, simple stuff. Rails. Simple stuff. Simple stuff. Let, let's get back. <laughs> shouldn't have insurance, and this, and things would be better. All you got to no. do is look at a, at a family with a sick child, and you'll realize, like, that is not the America we live in. No, well, you know? but there, there would be insurance is a natural construct. Society would come up with some insurance scheme because nobody wants to. I mean, life insurance came up. With, so anyway, but that's exactly. a separate issue. Let, let's has. not go there. But but here, but but, the quick thing, but but look, progress has happened. There's massive progress that's happened. That's made all our lives incredibly better. That's happened. 
without some insurance scheme to pay for innovation, though, Peter. You have to you have to agree to that, right? So yes, Henry Henry Ford to make well, innovation affordable. No, 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 no. But but there have been but there have been in history is replete with technological progress that has made our lives better that has not required an insurance scheme to pay for that. Henry Ford did not have some some someone saying, oh, we have we must have whatever uh, cars and therefore we will pay X amount for each car so that you so, can produce it. So just to be clear, you so I'm so just saying, what you're saying, I'm saying is no, I'm simply saying that their progress has happened yeah. outside of healthcare, and there's been mass. I mean, wait, so Andrew, just be, Andrew Moore, Andrew wait, Moore, so just uh, the, because Silicon Valley chips, personal computers, all that happened without somebody saying this is the way we must go. Because what you're talking about, Peter, is a very is a planned economy. And look, I, there's obviously lots oh, of I'm, evidence of planned economy. It's well, not at all a planned economy. I'm, well, I disagree you're... entirely. It is not a planned economy. <laughs> planned economy is what uh, the Arnold Foundation and others who say there's a formula for everything and we know what it is. That's a planned economy. What right. I'm no, saying, you're right. yeah. I don't know what the value of this is, but I do know that if society is just willing to uh, support the drug industry to the tune of something in the ballpark of what it has been, 1.3% yeah. of GDP, Personally, I personally would prefer it be more, right? Because I think that it would be better to invent new medicines than to invent Fortnite 7 and, you know, <laughs> to have uh, another Netflix or whatever. But I also respect the fact that maybe people would rather suffer from heart disease while watching, you know, uh, uh, the second coming of Game of Thrones, you know, and if that's what they choose, fine, I get it. But I am absolutely going to lobby for what yeah. I believe is worth it. It's my job in a democracy. It yeah. is like the antithesis of a planned economy that I'm out there defending what I believe is a better use of society's funds. Nor am I suggesting that we not have another coming of uh, Game of Thrones. That was a really great show. And I think that if society would just see that uh, inventing a drug that cuts the need for, uh, you know, heart uh, transplants yeah. or... Um, you know, for uh, expensive rehabilitation, you know, after hip replacement surgeries or whatever, yeah. we would in fact have both more money and more time and right. peace of mind to enjoy the next season of yeah. Game of but, Thrones. But Peter, nobody, nobody, nobody lobbied for Game of Thrones to come up. Nobody lobbied for the Ford to start making his machines. So I, I would say, I, I would just say, actually, that's not true. That's not true. No, because come on. No, no, I'm sorry. No, no, meaning, meaning nobody said we want. Meaning, I would say you yeah, should trust so you should trust the American people, the American no, that, populace, that is not true. to value are what, not what it is you make. Cable no. is not free, and you know there was a ton of lobbying to make sure that Americans would get cheap cable, and that cable companies should not be able to charge uh, HBO a certain you know excess in order to uh, pipe all its the, content. All, all so, the innovation came from the cable cutters. HBO is what brought Game of Thrones, not stupid ABC, CBS, or Fox. Right, Netflix. That's and that's yet, why there's tons of innovation. So it, it's cutting the cable and going through the internet that allowed for that stuff to happen. The internet requires right. a cable. I don't you know, know what we're doing. I mean, oh, I mean, cable, know. cable so, by cable cutting. Yes. I mean, you mean, you mean those, I thought you were talking about TV cable and stuff. And, and I'm talking about cable that pipes internet in, and the fact that the companies that control that cable also would uh, like to be able to, you know, control throttle back, you know, uh, the speed at which you get content that they control and they don't. There are people lobbying for the proper application of rules to this game that we play in, right? It's all game theory. That's what regulators do. And we're making little adjustments here and there to make sure that we have a free market. 
A free market is not chaos. It's not anarchy. You know that, right? A free market is a effectively regulated market. And when natural monopolies set in, they need to be regulated. Where there aren't natural monopolies, and I would posit that there are many drug classes that are not natural monopolies, plenty of competition. Okay. And I think we can find and they go, they go generic. So even if they are a natural monopoly for a, a temporary period of time, it's self-correcting by the fact that the patents expire and they go generic. That nope, nope. sure always happens. Right. There is a trend in the industry to go to natural monopolies that can't go generic. That needs to be nipped. But I, I, what I would, I think, find we're all in agreement that the pharmaceutical company uh, produces an amazing amount of value, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, Maybe greater than any other segment of the population because of what you're because of any other segment of healthcare. Because I love of that. Healthcare. I would love to stop you right there. That's because of exactly what you're exactly what you're talking about. And because but. of that, I would say I would say because of that, I would say that it is so obvious to 330 million Americans that you would find a robust market to support you even without even without the no. the need. I for, think you're right. I think you're right. Need for some of those going to go. Yeah. Here's how it's going to go, right? Let's play this one out. This is we're now in what like the third hour. This is the fun hour. For those of you that have been listening with us for the last like nearly 2 hours, uh, this is the payoff. This is the fun hour, right? Um, I think it's going to go like this. Let's just say Congress imposes price controls and uh, you know, the industry basically disintegrates, we, right? We would oppose that. We would oppose that. Well, no. I, I, mean, I would oppose I, it. Okay, uh, it wipes out insurance, it, uh, people have to pay out of pocket, uh, and the industry basically says, well, I can't, I can't invent a cancer drug uh, that is gonna help 5,000 people with a particular you know, type of cancer driven by ALK um, or TREC or whatever. Yeah, that, that's, so I, uh, right, I, that I'm not sure we agree what happened. Oh, look, what happened, look, what happened, look what happened to the NHS. Even the NHS, the control system, when there was a drug that was of such value to the entire populace, what happened? They, 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 oh, something just one got second. created. One, one second. Okay. I'm okay. saying that you know, first we destroy what we have by eliminating insurance. And all of a sudden, the industry reacts immediately. I Trust me, I will not have a fund to invest in, right? And... Uh, I'm going to have to basically find something else to do with my time, uh, with all my training, everything I've ever done. It's like kind of pointless. And then all of a sudden people will say, wait, we're dying of cancer. I, and there's hopefully still NIH funded research and they're saying, hey, I think I have an idea for how to treat this particular kind of cancer that's driven by an ABC mutation. And you know, maybe some academics will, with their limited budgets, sequence some patients and say, hey, some cancers are caused by mutations in ABC. I bet if this academic chemist over there were to develop a drug you know, for these patients, there's only 5,000 of them, and you know, it would take an inordinate amount of money you know, uh, for those 5,000 patients to fund you know, uh, this particular thing. But uh, I could do it. And it's possible that when we accumulate a whole bunch of you know, those kinds of realizations over time, uh, where people realize that there's breakthroughs that we could be making in sickle cell disease and Duchenne muscular dystrophy and various cancers and Alzheimer's and whatever it is, uh, that we will have maybe some donations going to a few groups that you know, manage to accumulate a few millions of dollars and make a little more progress. And maybe what we're going to get at some point is uh, a real... Um, enthusiasm that surges up and maybe we'll get a president, you know, the next Nixon that declares a war on cancer and dumps, you know, like 
uh, I don't know, $10 billion uh, into a cancer fund and says, that's it, we're gonna put an end to cancer. And uh, then somebody will say, really? Like we should trust a single centrally planning government organization to deploy $10 billion? That's the most efficient way to do it? Wouldn't it be better to instead use that as a kind of X prize to incentivize companies to try to develop some drugs for cancer? And in the end, what I believe would happen is you would end up from first principles reinventing a system that looks an awful lot like this one, except it may take like 30 years for us after we've destroyed what we have today. This institution that we have today, it may take us 30 years to reinvent what we have today again. No, but Peter, clearly, clearly, if we destroy what we have and we don't change our, our principles, we're going to get the same thing. Right. So the point is not just to destroy, but it's, it's, it's to work on the basis of the correct principles for, you know, a just society or a better society um, or, or whatever. I, okay. I would hope those principles so, are better. I would no, hope we so, would so, that all 5,000 of those patients with that cancer should then get the drug rather than simply say, well, we chose to uh, fund the development of that drug for you, but we chose to only pay for 80 percent of it. And so, no, but, 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 but in, 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 the, in, in, the, in the, the, the scheme that you've outlined, first of all, uh, the subsidy right now, let's say the government stops subsidizing insurance. Yeah. Presumably, if the subsidy comes from the taxpayer's money, then presumably it would go back into their pocket and then they can choose to decide how to pay for it. Or no, if it comes from, if it comes from debt. I don't assume it, that at all. It, it, you just threw a divide by zero in no, there. No, because, because you, said, you, said, you said if the subsidy from, from the government goes away, then, then the industry will have its income completely go to zilch. Well, that's not true because, because all, if the subsidy goes away, then it goes back the same pile of money that is currently being by law channeled to the pharmaceutical industry would it, go into the private sector and the private sector law. would decide, the private sector would decide whether they want to continue to spend it on the pharmaceuticals or whether they want to spend it to Fortnite or something else. Yes, you're right. right. Okay, it, it so 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 the money would mass, be there, right? But it would take a critical mass of suffering. I mean, we didn't used to no, have an no, insurance. No, why, why, why do you, why do you assume that? Why do you assume that innovation will, you know, respond only to a critical mass of suffering? I mean, people want to invest. Private citizens always and have always invested and and sponsored industries to, uh, oh, you know, produce innovation. Peter, you don't you don't have enough for the only for the masses. You don't have enough faith. You don't have enough faith in your own in your own industry's value, Peter. Your your industry is so valuable that since the 1800s, uh, you know. Uh, but I do. I'm telling you, it will come about again. No, no, but, but, without, but we're saying let's let's make it come about without without right. Well, I'm not without really an saying artificial what, subsidy. There's an artificial yeah. subsidy that destroys that destroys the value. It. In the eyes of some people, it makes it overinflated, right? So people are critical of the pharmaceutical industry yeah. because they see it as being oversubsidized, and they say, "Oh, your profits are too much." And so, and so, you have to appeal to a certain calculus. You have to say, "Oh, but listen, you know, it's only for the ten years of the, the patent that we make profit. After that, it becomes a commodity and whatnot." But guys, these are very complicated things. I mean, they are sort of central management, data. central planning things. You have the data. You, you're, you're physicians. I mean, it, given no, what you're because you, on, you only have the data because because you you. It uses sort of artificial artificial um, uh, assessments of value. It's sort of an artificial. Let me tell you, 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 you have the data. They're right here. We don't have to invent counterfactuals. We absolutely have the data. Medically prescribed products, physician prescribed. We do. I'll tell they, you. But the there's no data. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. What is the data? I what is promise the data? you. 
All you have to do is to take a look at some of the products that were developed by industry, knowing full well that they would not be able to count on insurance for any reimbursement whatsoever. And look at how well they have done and who gets them and who doesn't get them. Do you know what they are? No, but well, we already talked about them. They're Botox, wrinkle fillers. Uh, no, but but again, but this is this is not a, an experiment because it, because it's it's in the setting, it's an environment where at the same time you have a an in, an insurance industry that continues and subsidizes. So no, no, they are not covered by insurance. No, no, I know, but they that warps. Entirely, but Peter, they the, exist the, entirely the, outside of it. Yes, yes, yes. But the but, presence of the subsidy, Peter, warps the whole correct. investment pattern. Correct. What, the, the, so so if if there was he's outside of it, any company could have developed Botox or wrinkle filler without any regard. It's as if. It, It, okay. You guys aren't linking the car industry to drugs and saying no, that actually, drug subsidies warp the car industry. I'm saying Botox and wrinkle fillers are entirely their own uh, area, except what they do is demonstrate that innovators, scientists, are capable of developing something with clinical trial costs, with clinical development risks, right? Knowing that they will only be able to recoup their uh, investment and generate a return purely from people's choice their decision, I'm willing to pay that. They set a price yes. based on yes. what people, people could afford. Yes. It is a beautiful example of simply counting on raw free market willingness yes. to pay yes. to yes. incentivize a complex FDA regulated drug development process. Are you with me now in seeing how wonderful a case study this is? No, but uh, how, how, is that, how is that a counter to what I was saying? It's not at all a counter. Okay. It is not giving you the answer. See, you have a window into what your world will look like, right? This is what I presume you want. You want to know like, hey, if we just make these tweaks and eliminate these uh, distortions and these subsidies, what will it look like? I will tell you what it will look like simply by looking at who so, gets Botox. No, I mean, are you, are you saying that in my world, then only Botox would be developed and hepatitis C drugs not would not be developed? Not, not at all, okay. not at all. So, so. To the extent, To the extent that there are enough uh, wealthy uh, people who have hepatitis C and would have been willing to pay whatever you know it would have cost industry to develop it, you would have gotten that. However, just like Botox is not you know sold to uh, people is, who are willing to pay for it, others would not have gotten it. This right? is the same. So, this, uh, this is the, if, however, the, nope. you couldn't make the math work if there weren't enough. Wealthy people. No, that's not. But but no. But but no. But that ignores something. No, that ignores. Again, history has to be our guide here because there are no great experiments. So you, I understand your point is saying that okay, you need enough wealthy wealthy people, and then you'll create policies that that affect uh, poor people, and more poor people maybe black, etc. And that that'll fundamentally racist. That's what that's your point, correct? But well, okay. I mean, you meaning meaning you're saying there, but uh, no, meaning you're saying you're saying that you're saying that the, the folks that will be benefited are only the wealthy, basically, correct? Yeah. I, I didn't throw a race or whatever in there, but well, you know, no, well, I mean, I mean, extrapolate all you like, right. um, but no, no, well, that that would that would result in inequities. I I, I mean to say that, that's all I meant to say. But okay, yeah, right, in, no. inequity. I mean, look, I don't mind that you know uh, some people have smoother foreheads than others. I don't think that's a necessity. But I, my heart does break at the idea that anybody, you know, uh, frankly, no. in America or anywhere in the world, if their child has sickle cell disease yeah. no, or but, fibrosis, that someone says, no, you're too poor. You don't get it. I think right. it's hard. No, but, right. But, but again, again, if you look at if you look back history, if you look at take a look at history in terms of how things developed and, and say, um, 
uh, uh, again, higher education is, is, is a good example. Um, uh, you know, there have always historically been, uh, there's been a demand for uh, folks that are, that, are, that are poor to be able to have access to higher education, correct? Before there were these massive subsidies um, to go to, you know, lo low interest loans from the government, et cetera, right? Um, there were historically black colleges that, that arose um, because a large percentage of the population at the time that didn't have access to education was black. There was a massive need in those communities for, uh, you know, this is in the, in the era of Jim Crow laws, et cetera, right? Uh, seg you know, segregated, uh, segregated America. There was a massive need for people of color uh, to have access to, to education. And what happened? So again, even Wait, without you, help me out, are you guys nostalgic for the Jim Crow era? Because no, no, why, you know, no, why, no. I, I think I'm we not, need to. I'm little, not saying that. I'm not saying. No, I'm saying that. I'm saying that at a time when there was significant amount of segregation, there, there was, there was a, and before there were significant subsidies that existed, right? We had there was there were solutions that would come to bear. For instance, you had historically black colleges that that were funded via via. Yeah, you know, no, it's called the civil rights movement. Right. The, oh, our society no. indeed rose up and said, that's not good enough. Uh, and it changed. And we got to a, the world that we have today in response to the inequities and injustices. And we still have inequities and injustices. And we have right, massive. So, so, right. So, so what? So then so my right. point. So, but the and point, therefore we need to continue to evolve. But it is not to tear down the institutions we have. It's to learn the lessons of why do they work when they work and how do we make them work for more? Right, but the idea again, what we've done then has we have made. I would argue again, higher education is a nice little example. I would argue that we have made and we have put higher education at many institutions, even state institutions now, well out of the reach of 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 many folks. And again, who gets affected most? It's the disadvantaged I, community. I, that's, that's I'm not sure. Most. Look, you're you're taking me outside of my area of uh, understanding. I believe I'm that saying, there's a range of schools out there. There right. are state schools that are, you know, uh, significantly less expensive, community right. colleges. There right. is some education, hopefully, that many people can afford. And yes, there are, you know, some schools that are absurdly expensive, and it's not clear to me right. you know, how much more they offer, you know, but, uh, you know, there's a range. And I happen to believe that uh, unlike schools, which don't go generic, their brands don't go generic, though maybe that might be nice if they did, uh, Drugs do. They are manufactured good. I would like us yeah, to compare but, drugs to manufactured goods, and I would like us to recognize that all products that can be commoditized are way more cost effective than the rents extracted from these kinds of service industries, especially the ones that lord their brands over us, whether it be some fancy hospital right, or university right, or whatever. Right. But Peter, so but Peter, the point that again, the point that uh, the, the point that I was trying to counter was this idea that if we move to a world where you could, uh, uh, where we uh, didn't have some of the subsidies that inflate prices, we could perhaps, uh, we could perhaps get to a point where you had more drugs or more accessible to more people. Meaning, I don't know, like even yeah, in the I, like there have been there have been pharmaceutical companies. That I'm not willing for a to long take the time. radical. I'm not willing to make the uh, radical changes you guys seem to be advocating, stripping people of uh, no, no, even benefits of insurance. It's not stripping uh, people in of order insurance. To find out. No, 
I'd like to protect what we have. But yeah, what oh, we have right now is 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 insurance right. that doesn't pay for anything just precisely because the natural progression yeah. of insurance now is to the prices have gone so high that insurance has to force people yeah. to pay out of pocket hey. and therefore Wait, they what? can't afford anything. The argument is how the argument is how to get access. The argument is how do we give more access to more people? And the question is how do we get there? All the outrage in America is driven by a minority of people for whom uh, insurance is not working. You cannot ignore the fact that actually, as flawed as America's insurance system is, it's actually working for a lot of people. A lot of yep. people are getting the care they need. Their kids are healthier. Their parents are living longer. They're living more active lives. I, yeah. We can make it work for the fraction of Americans that have been left behind, the ones for whom the out-of-pocket costs are too much. And the 15% of Americans that don't have insurance at all, it is affordable, certainly as far as drug coverage goes, which yeah. is my job here. I'm not here to solve the problem that you guys probably know a lot better on the healthcare service side. That's a mess, you know, uh, beyond my comprehension. But on the drug side, the 1.3% of our GDP that is spent on drugs, that we absolutely can make uh, affordable to all Americans who need it. I'll even tell you this. Uh, if we could just get insurance to lower out-of-pocket costs, and we can do that with a snap, just like we eliminated pre-existing conditions, you can have Congress pass a uh, law that says out-of-pocket costs for drugs cannot be in excess of X, so that it's affordable. There will still be the 15% of Americans who do not have insurance. What, they, they're going to pay out-of-pocket for all these drugs? I'll tell you, the drug industry would just give away all of its drugs for free, if Congress doesn't, you know, enact laws to prevent it, which perversely they sometimes, uh, you know, toy with that. But uh, basically, the 85% of people with insurance would uh, have insurance that pays for drug prices uh, a little bit more so that you can uh, subsidize the cost of, of giving away those drugs for free to the 15% without. I still don't know how those 15% who don't have any, uh, you know, health insurance are going to be able to get routine medical care you know they would at least need to go to a doctor you know some of these free local community clinics to get a prescription for their free insulin or whatever and there is by the way free insulin these uh insulin manufacturers are giving away free insulin to uh I, free clinics I, you know peter that's i was going to actually end with something but that's a great example of i, I totally forgot i was going to bring it up i mean look look what the market the market has given us and i i manage these patients because and they come to me because you know, they, they, they're underinsured, they're, they have high out of pocket. And guess what? Guess what? I, I'm amazed at I'm amazed that uh, is it Eli Lilly or I forget which which company has done a deal with Walmart to create the, the insulin named rely on which is, you know, an, an older insulin, but still, oh, no, no, no. let's not talk about that. That by comparison to what we have today, that's a poison. It, so no, what's I, I don't, what's I, don't know, I don't know if it's a I don't I don't think a, a poison yeah, is probably the it, wrong it's word, my but job it's to take a position that's a little bit you know to one side of you on this one. And otherwise, well, it's okay. So so you're saying what, I they mean, make their human insulin analogs, the modern ones, the yes. good insulins. They make them free. free. Yes, I understand. I understand they right? make them so free. You don't have to get the free. cheap poison from Walmart. You can get the free insulin from these clinics. You have to be below a certain threshold, you know. Right, and uh, so these patients that I have have a job and they're above those thresholds and don't qualify. Obviously, I mean, I try to get the, the you know, the once a day. I, I try, I try. <laughs> Believe me, I mean, my job is to try to get 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 the, get, get yeah. patients who need insulin insulin. So, right. uh, so when we can I take care of fifteen percent without insurance, we can just give them drug until Congress figures out how to extend insurance to them because they still need it. It's not like I'm going to worry that if we start giving away free drug to the uninsured, 
everyone in America is like, great, I'm going to drop my insurance. So I don't worry about the unintended consequence of, you know, uh, that kind of, um, uh, you know, free, uh, free drugs for the 15%. So uh, we can fix this. Uh, yeah. All of the angst in America, if we simply get the current insurance plans to reduce out-of-pocket costs for the current drugs, $61 billion uh, in out-of-pocket costs, uh, you know, out of a $17 trillion of income, we can spread that across. Plus, there's uh, research that even the Congressional Budget Office supports and has cited that says that if you reduce these out-of-pocket costs, not entirely, there are plenty of people who can afford their out-of-pocket costs, but some fraction, a uh, relatively modest fraction of the 61 billion just falls in too big a pile on some people and it makes adherence to treatment very difficult for them. So they don't adhere and they get worse outcomes. And what the math, uh, the Congressional Budget Office itself has cited, and they tend to be a pretty neutral party, uh, even though sometimes their math really seems to cut against the drug industry. But in, in this particular case, they said, yeah, if you were to reduce uh, the out-of-pocket costs for patients, it would increase the amount of utilization of drugs, but it would more than offset that uh, e expenditure with savings on healthcare services. And so they concluded that reducing out-of-pocket costs for this was a, a assessment for Medicare would actually result in savings. And so Peter, we'll have to bring you back for another podcast where I, I disagree with that right, assertion. Fair enough. Wait, <laughs> you say you no, disagree? Well, this whole this idea of idea for a podcast where you yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, right. we'll have you, we'll have you, yeah, we'll, no, we'll definitely have that. This has been a fantastic discussion, and and I, again, I love your book. Everyone should everyone should read it. It's fantastic. Um, I think you you make some you make some very clear points. Uh, the the idea that um, the idea that you know we are making an investment and these drugs are going generic, and 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 again, it can't be said enough that. The American drug industry, which again you are you're one of the prime movers and shakers of, um, uh, is the kind of the global uh, innovation hub. And you know, without without what folks like you are doing, you know, we'd be uh, we'd certainly be in a in a far worse place. You know, our, our disagreement comes in on in, in terms of in terms of you not having enough faith in uh, the American people to uh, to uh, to value what you do, regardless of what you know, you know I, the, what other constructs we talk I, about. Because I, I think that I do. It's just a question of how long they would self-organize to come up with an alternative solution. I'm not willing yeah. to lose the time, right? Okay. It may well, happen I'm, after I have you know, got cobwebs on me and I'm not going to be able to contribute. Uh, no, 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 you, to again, now, you so. don't have enough faith in the product you're selling. You're, you're selling a great product uh, and I, I think I people would faith. buy it. I have faith in the product I'm selling. I don't have faith. And in you the don't need the government for it. <laughs> All right. Next right. time, guys. Yeah, next time, next time. Thank you very much. Great, Thank great, you very great much. conversation. Yep. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.